It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome. Welcome on board for this, uh, I always almost say Monday. No, wait, it's actually Thursday. It is the 5th of July. And trust, you had a great 4th of July holiday. It seems to be an odd week, I suppose, for many of us sort of getting back from the idea of two days on, two days off, and this one day in the middle that wasn't nearly enough time off. But that's okay. We'll uh, we'll try to work a weekend in here in about a day, shall we? Got a great program lined up for you tonight. Coming up a little bit later on in the first hour, we're going to be joined by constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus. We'll talk about the narrowing field of candidates, three candidates now that have been named as the potential replacements for uh, Justice Kennedy. So we'll talk SCOTUS candidates as well as the recent reversal of California's controversial Reproductive Fact Act. All that coming up later on with constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus. Also, workplace security advisor Robert Solers will join us. We're going to talk about how do you protect yourself on the job. It used to be just crazy bosses you had to worry about or the nutcase that worked in the cubicle next door to you. What happens if that nutcase comes back armed with a weapon? What happens if there is a former client that is upset and decides to take out a vendetta and shoot up your workplace? We have recent examples of shooting at the newspaper in Annapolis last week. Back in April, seems like an eon ago, the shooting that took place right here in the Bay Area at YouTube headquarters. How can you better protect yourself from potential active shooters on the job? We'll talk about that coming up in one half hour. As we launch today's program, dealing with a topic that I know is going to make some of, well, who am I kidding? It's going to make a lot of you (laughs) very uncomfortable. But perhaps it's high time we had this conversation. We know certainly there's been plenty of discussion pertaining to the way society and our culture today treats marriage, and there have been changing norms in the arena of marriage. And oftentimes we argue from a historical viewpoint, traditional viewpoint, biblical viewpoint, that we just need to go back to what the Bible teaches about marriage. But what exactly does the Bible teach about marriage? And have we in the church, potentially unwittingly so, elevated marriage to such a high level that we almost idolize it? And what of the singles in the church today? Are they just poor folks that have lucked out, haven't stumbled across that special someone? Are they somehow less than living the ideal Christian life because they're not married? Wrestling through all these questions, our first guest tonight, he is a Ph.D., from Fuller Theological Seminary. In fact, he's assistant professor of theology there, theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. Prior to teaching at Fuller, he served in pastoral ministry for nearly a decade and has authored a new book that tackles this controversial topic called Breaking the Marriage Idol, Reconstructing Our Cultural and Spiritual Norms. Pleased to have with us today, Professor Dr. Cutter Calloway. Dr. Calloway, great to have you with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Well, you're not uh, you're not bashful at all into diving into this arena, and I would suspect that um, uh, strong proponents of a traditional viewpoint of marriage are all wondering what the heck is all this about. And folks <laughs> in the audience that heard me mention 
idolizing marriage to, to the point of making singles feel as if they are living in less than the ideal Christian life, suddenly sat on the edge of their chairs. What led you down this road to deal with this particular topic? Oh, man. Well, you know, when I started my career, I thought, why, what do I want to do? And that was, I want to write a book about marriage. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. I, you know, it, it, it's one of these, probably of, of any of my writing projects, um, this is the one that I, I didn't choose. Um, in a lot of ways, it's sort of, I, I, I describe it as it chose me, but really it just emerged from um, a number of conversations. One, uh, starting back um, when I was a, a youth pastor, when I was uh, serving ministry with, with young and emerging adults, then 20 and 30. So I, I sort of, my pastoral ministry emerged with a kind of generation of folks that grew up um, under certain norms. Um, and then now I'm, I'm in a role where I'm training future ministers um, and, and even people that aren't going into pastoral ministry, but uh, just sort of navigating these theological questions uh, as it pertains to the Christian community. Um, and time and time again, just numerous people uh, would come up and share stories here and there um, about their encounter with this sort of inarticulate something that they were coming up against. Um, and that's whether they were married or single. Um, and as, as multiple of these conversations came about, I realized, you know, it might be some, these might be sort of scratching an itch that we've got, um, and it might be sort of identifying or re- revealing a, a conversation that's not taking place, and that is, what, how do we think about marriage, and how does that affect the way we uh, talk not only about marriage, but then also about uh, singleness, um, especially in a cultural context where, you know, as you noted in the, the lead-in, um, marriage itself is undergoing these sort of radical redefinitions. So, um, maybe it's time to kind of take stock uh, as a community of faith and say, okay, um, what is it that we think marriage is, and how is it that um, we want to sort of root ourselves in the Christian tradition, and then where is it maybe we've gone astray from that a little bit? I guess the initial question is this notion that somehow one size fits all, meaning that the yeah. church historically, with regard, uh, without regard to denomination, has typically looked at this as believing that marriage is the ideal and people that are single yeah. within the church are just waiting until they are no longer single. And in the meanwhile, we yeah. need to keep them entertained and busy um, until they're no longer single. And so the emphasis yeah. seems yeah. to be on obtaining the ideal for what God wants for you is marriage. Yeah. And if anyone dares suggest that they don't have interest in that, there's immediately yeah. questions about your relationship with God, your understanding of marriage. Yeah. Maybe there's something psychologically wrong with you. And I've yeah. always found yeah. it interesting that all of this flies in the face of a comment that Paul, and this is often overlooked, <laughs> that Paul made talking uh-huh. about the notion that it's better, as he was speaking, better to remain as I, single. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating to me because you're exactly right. It's um, Now, I want to be uh, fair to our fellow brothers and sisters, and and I even, I put myself um, sort of, I'm, I'm accused as well. So like being in pastoral ministry, I, I did the same thing, I think, to people un- unknowingly sometimes. So it's not always that we're all saying exactly what you said, but everything else we do and all the way we organize our ministries basically says it without us ever having to say it. Um, and yet, exactly right, that it, it flies in the face of otherwise what we would say um, are sort of our core thinkers of, of Christianity, uh, one being Paul, both his life and his explicit message, and the other being Jesus, Jesus himself um, being a single man and the fullest expression of humanity that ever has been. Um, and yet, yeah, we treat people who either uh, on you know choose for themselves this path or um, have it chosen for them for any number of reasons 
as if they're kind of second-class citizens. Or maybe worse um, yet, as you suggest inside the book, the the, the topic of uh, of marriage being treated as if it is somehow a uh, a panacea for a person who cannot control their sexual desires. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I found fascinating, too. And, you know, I grew up, I'm still semi-young. I'm staring down 40 here, uh, so... (laughs) Uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm on the younger side, but I've been married. I'll celebrate 18 years uh, in, let's see, uh, four days from now. Um, no, three days from now. Get that and, right. <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. I, I, well, it's just because I forgot what today was, not what my anniversary is. But, um, you know, I, I, I look back, and some of what I do in the book is I look back at the sort of subculture that I was raised in that I think was unique to sort of um, 70s, 80s, 90s evangelical subculture. Um, and a lot of what the messaging was was really that marriage was um, the place where your um, any of your sort of sexual angst or sexual desire, um, and, you know, again, rightly was to be focused, but it almost was as if marriage was just this, you know, wave a magic wand, and it, it solved any of the problems you had, whether that's I'm lonely, whether it's um, I am just sort of have sexuality run amok, whether it's, um, you know, I... I just want to have a companion, whether, you know, any of these sort of things, um, marriage was the answer to all of these problems. And as I've experienced and counseled others, um, I don't, I've not met any, anybody that marriage has solved the personal issues they bring into the relationship. It, if anything, it's magnified it. Now, it can also be a great uh, mechanism for um, growth and for maturity, and the best of marriages do that. But there's also, as we know, so many um, within our churches that um, you know, almost equal to the general population, where it's unsustainable for some reason. And I go back to say, well, maybe what we're doing is holding up marriage to answer questions it wasn't supposed to answer, and to um, we're putting a burden on it that it was never meant to bear. Let's pause on that point. When we come back, I want to have you directly answer the the detractors of this topic. They will say, yeah. "Hang yeah. on, just a minute here, Cutter." God's design for mankind is to be married and to procreate, and we know how the narrative goes from there. So I'm going to have you directly respond to that and then dive a little bit deeper into this notion that, you know, while oftentimes we suggest within society uh, as a whole and certainly within the church in specific that marriage is always the ideal, we sometimes often do that intertwined with, well, for example, another narrative that goes everyone needs to have a college degree or a college education. Is that necessarily the case? Or some people, can they get along okay in life just by having a trade school background? Well, we'll talk about that in relationship to whether or not marriage is, in fact, the ideal for everyone as our conversation with author Cutter Calloway continues. A look at breaking the marriage idol, reconstructing our cultural and spiritual norms. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The new book uh, released here on InterVarsity Press is uh, written by our guest today, Cutter Calloway, looking at breaking the marriage idol, reconstructing our cultural and spiritual norms. And of course, as we mentioned, Cutter serves as Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. By the way, a, a shout out to your boss, uh, Mark Laberton. He was here in the Bay Area as a senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church for many, many years and had his radio show right here on KFAX. So if you run into Mark here at some point, be sure and say that uh, his uh, former listeners and friends up here in the Bay Area all say hi. 
Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, yeah, we're blessed to have Mark and uh, super excited to be under his leadership. So let's talk specifically here, Professor Calloway, about this notion that, that detractors will say, now, wait a minute, we read through the entirety of Scripture God's ideal, and that is marriage is necessary, it is a creation of God, it honors God, it helps to procreate and, of course, allow the continuance of mankind, and therefore, ultimately, this is in every fashion God's ideal, so therefore, it must be His ideal for all of us. How do you respond to that? Well, um, you know, it's, it's a, a yes and, right, that, that we'll do the... Uh, the improv uh, technique, where I say, yes, absolutely, God created marriage, it's a great good, and I want to support and value, if anything, actually, my book's about uh, how much I do value marriage, and that we should value it perhaps more than we do, and the way that we don't value it, I think, is by taking that next step, which is to say, and everyone ought to do it. Um, I fully understand why that uh, narrative is out there, and and, and how we've inherited it. Um, It's actually somewhat unique um, in, in Christian history, because, uh, you know, for much of Christian history, uh, it was actually uh, the, the life of committed uh, single celibate uh, priests and nuns who were kind of held up as the saints of the faith, the, the you know, the great uh, victors and exemplars that we would uh, emulate. And we don't have that, um, especially in Protestant Christianity and, and more recently. Um, the, the sort of easy answer, or I guess it's not easy, um, is go read the book. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, but, but basically what I do is say, you know, we've, it, when we go back to the biblical narratives, um, I think what we've done is we've conflated some things, and that is we've taken some passages that are principally about what it means to be a human, um, and we've turned those into what it means to be married. And then the passages that are either describing or using metaphor to, to, to talk about marriage, um, we either sort of brush aside as inconvenient, um, or then the explicit uh, messages of, say, Jesus and Paul, um, we somehow just forget or ignore. I'm not, I'm not really sure how that plays itself out. Um, and so I would say, at the end of the day, if you, you're going to read my book, um, you look at sort of Adam and Eve, this is where a lot of people go to to say this is, you know, God's ideal, the model is marriage. Um, and, and in fact, the, the Hebrew there, there's no sense in which um, the words husband and wife are spoken of with Adam and Eve. That doesn't mean I think they weren't married um, at all, so I just want to make that clear. Um, but it does suggest to me that it's that, that this story in Genesis is more about what does it mean to be a human created in the image of God? Um, and that is a human that's in relationship. Um, humanity is, is sexually differentiated in that sense, um, but are meant to be in community both with each other and with God. And that's the sort of uh, the, the perfect vision of the garden is this... Um, uh, humans interacting with each other and with the, the non-human creation and God um, in a sort of robust relationality. And that's distinct from being married. Um, and in fact, the words husband and wife in Hebrew don't even show up until um, after the fall, interestingly. Um, and that being said, if all we had was the, the First Testament, the Old Testament, and we didn't have the New Testament, it would be an even easier answer. Um, I think the, the interesting thing where Adam and Eve sort of start in the garden then Jesus points us towards the end and says pretty clearly there won't be marriage in heaven <laughs> in the kingdom to come. Um, and that is a really challenging, difficult uh, uh, message, both to the you know, people in Jesus' day, but then also to us, to me, because I think when it comes down to it, um, when I try to think of who I would be without my wife, um, or who would Cutter be as a non-married person who, who's married to this particular person, Jessica, 
what 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 is I can't even imagine who I'm going to be in the coming kingdom if I'm not married to her, if I'm not her spouse. And so it's really challenging me to think. Um, I I think that reveals the sort of idolatry in my heart, even of my own relationship with my wife, which is to say, do I really believe that God ultimately fulfills me, or is it something else? Is it my marriage? Is it my my spouse? Is it some you know uh, my work? Whatever it is. And that's where the idol uh, part comes in, where I start realizing, when pressed, I don't want to accept Jesus' vision uh, of the coming kingdom. I don't want to accept that there's a reality that I'm fulfilled by God's presence and not by these other things that I, that I know and can see and taste and touch in my real life. And so that's kind of would be my response, that it's both, yes, absolutely, marriage is a wonderful good um, with many uh, things that come with it, blessed by God, but um, it's pretty clear to me, scripture-wise, um, that we need to elevate the role of singleness um, in a way that's not just a, a, a nice option, but is maybe the default status of the Christian. Now, I have to wonder, uh, further complicating this uh, scenario here, and particularly in light of what's going on in modern culture with the Me Too movement and yeah. sexual exploitation that seems yeah. to be rampant yeah. in our society today, yeah. you suggest within the book that maybe we have unwittingly demeaned marriage, uh, better put, maybe belittled God's ideal by treating it somehow as a cure-all for uncontrollable yeah. sexual ideas yeah. or urges. Yeah. Uh, you point to uh, some of the uh, the old uh, Just Say No campaign that was popular yeah. under the Reagan uh, years, yeah. for those of yeah. us old enough to remember, that it was just simply a matter of resisting the temptation to do drugs by yeah. saying no. And I have to yeah. wonder if unwittingly we have demeaned marriage yeah. by taking that same approach that if you can't say no, say yes to marriage and everything will work out fine. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I was, I was thinking about this today because um, Christian Century published a, an excerpt of the book that talks a little bit about Paul's interaction with, with this. Um, and um, at least how I see it is, you know, this obviously spins out. It's not just about marriage, not just about singleness, but then about how we conceive of sexuality. Um, and how we help train both our young people, but then, uh, you know, our adults in our communities. Um, and I think you're right that, that we've said um, whatever sort of the, the, the angst you've got, um, it will be solved by this other relationship. Um, and what happens is then we bring in, instead of uh, in, the, in the meantime or along the way, sort of processing through what a healthy Christian sexuality is, we just sort of punt to this marriage. And I've got to be honest, the, the recent... Some of the recent responses to, uh, to Me Too, to some of these questions uh, from my own brothers and sisters, um, suggesting, for example, that, um, you know, there's, there's no such thing as, as a sort of, uh, of rape or sexual violence within a marriage because the people are married. Or, uh, you know, just some of these distorted views that come out from that. And I think part of it is exactly what you're getting at. And that is we've said that basically as long as you're married, anything goes. To me, that's actually a, a, a sub-Christian notion of sexuality, at least from Paul, which is always already um, not about what I, how I can be fulfilled, but how I can give to somebody else. It's always a self-giving sort of uh, mode of life, um, and so always places the other first, always places their needs and wants and desires and et cetera um, before mine, and there just is no place uh, for any kind of um, uh, power dynamics or anything like that in a what I would call a healthy Christian uh, sexuality in terms of, of being married. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's amazing to me the kind of distortions that occur when we when we place just simply place marriage as the pinnacle 
all the different realms of life that get affected by that. Um, and I think that exactly what you said, that, that the Me Too movement um, or some of the responses to that um, have, have been a reflection of, of what we've done with both marriage and sexuality. Uh, final question tonight, Professor, and it is clear to me that a half hour doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. <laughs> this, this is basically the tease. Uh, so we're going to have to have yeah. you back for a, a prolonged conversation. But that said, I have to wonder, too, if, if part of the emphasis here has unwittingly diminish the role that God wants to play in our lives in terms of overall fulfillment. Yeah. And, and by that, I mean that sometimes yeah. it yeah. seems as if, well, if you're lonely, the cure is you need to get married. If you yeah. can't control your sexual yeah. urges, then the answer is you need to get married, that somehow this is yeah. going to be the uh, the cure-all yeah. for everything. And yet, ironically, in those areas of a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and belonging and eating and being and, and, and ultimately having the totality of your person feel fulfilled in who you are in your identity in Christ that's born out of a personal relationship with him not out of yeah. the saying I do at the altar yeah uh, you, yes um, yeah <laughs> you should have written the book uh, it, it, absolutely I, I think um, you know one of the things that I kept recurring or coming into um, uh, from my time in ministry is and then even now is the amount of deep and profound loneliness that certain married people feel um, that marriage is not does not answer the question of loneliness at the same time um, the deep and profound sort of aching for uh, of loneliness that single Christians feel uh, because they too don't have a mechanism right now um, to become part of a community without it being sort of a, a meat market type of a thing um, and and so it really is for me just a call for us to stop and go well, what does it look like, both as individuals and as a community, to be the people of God in the world in such a way that we place God at the core of our fulfilling and fulfilled vision of life um, and not something else? And, uh, and that's my hope. Um, it really is sort of an open um, uh, question, in a way. And so part of I'd love to come back on again if, if you get some responses from listeners and stuff, because I, I do want to have a conversation about it. I'm you know, as well, I'm a theologian, so I'm always uh, constructing and reconstructing things. But um, I, I really think this is something that, uh, as all the single people that tweet or email me uh, when they hear about this say, is, you know, I don't feel like the icon that you say I am in the book. You know, I feel like a pariah in the church. And, and that's something that I think uh, married Christians in particular, but then married Christians and single Christians um, need to think about and address um, moving forward. Well, and the other notion here, too, is that with uh, the traditional marriage under attack in so many corners from so many different directions, yeah. it's perhaps high time that the Church rethink yeah. how we approach yeah. this, how we relate to this, and make sure yeah. that we're not in the effort to want to set up the yeah. ideal, um, not somehow supplanting what God's ultimate ideal is in His relationship with mankind. So, yes, I, I'm sure we'll get some responses to this. Of that, I have no doubt. And I look forward to uh, being able to get you back on the program real soon. There is Professor Cutter Calloway, Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. The book, it's this is not a light read. This isn't, I think I'll read it over the weekend and be done and be off to something else. Uh, this is something that I think will really cause you to ponder, to pray, to hopefully reevaluate some of your theology, and, and ultimately perhaps reevaluate to make sure that we're putting our relationship to marriage and our relationship to God in the proper balance. 
Breaking the marriage idol, reconstructing our cultural and spiritual norms. It isn't what you think it is. That's my sub-subtitle. Newly released by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as through, well as through uh, some of the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc., etc. Our thanks again to Professor Dr. Cutter Calloway for his look at remaking the marriage idol. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Police in Annapolis, Maryland, are indicating now that the shooting at the Capitol Gazette there last week was a targeted attack. Deputy Police Chief Bill Cramp indicated the gunman was armed with a shotgun and canisters of smoke and grenades and was prepared to enter the building, shoot people, and cause severe harm. Five were killed in the assault, while two others were injured. It is just the latest in a series of attacks, the most recent, in fact, right here in the San Francisco Bay Area, back in April, when when an armed gunman entered the headquarters in San Bruno of YouTube and decided to shoot the place up. Fortunately, in that case, only two people were critically injured, but they survived. But as we see this as a series of ongoing attacks, whether it be at churches or at schools or now at businesses, it is certainly cause for alarm. Now, while Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell might think it's a darn shame there's nothing that can be done, I bet you're not thinking that. I bet you're thinking as you go to work every day, wondering whether or not a former vendor or a former employee or questions about maybe a former client who might go a little crazy could potentially come to your place of work and begin shooting. What do you do? Are you literally like a a duck sitting as a target at a shooting gallery? Or are there actions you can and should be taking in advance and in the moment of an active shooter in order to protect yourself? Joining us now is workplace violence prevention uh, prevention consultant and expert, Robert Solaris. Robert is the author of a number of books, including his latest, Murder in the Classroom, A Practical Guide for Prevention. Robert, great to have you join us on the program. So the um, Senate Majority Leader thinks it's a darn shame, but nothing can be done. But I would imagine from your perspective, there are things that can be done. Tell us what we should be doing. Well, yeah, there are, th- th- thanks for having me on this evening. And there are a number of things that we can do um, as employees, students, business owners, managers, and so on to help prevent something like this from happening. There's never a guarantee that what we do is going to stop it, but obviously we, can, we need to do everything we possibly can. And the first thing that people need to do is realize that it can happen to anyone, anywhere, at any time, for any reason. And learn what the warning signs are, and don't ignore those warning signs as just, they're just going through a bad time or, you know, something of that nature. And certainly in almost every one of these cases, whether it be the recent YouTube shooting, the shooting at the newspaper, um, or a couple of years ago, there was a shooting here in San Francisco at the UPS building. In every case, they were either uh, people that had were known to the organization or perhaps had been current or ex-employees who had a grudge and who had vocalized their grudge and perhaps at certain levels demonstrated the kind of behavior that might raise some questions. But of course, it's always seemingly the, what's the old scenario, hindsight is twenty twenty. How do we get a clue ahead of time? What are the things that, that employers and employees should be looking out for? Well, number one, employers need to ensure that their facilities are as secure as they can possibly be without making them look like a 
Soviet Union era gulag. Uh, if doors are supposed to be locked and not propped open for any reason, that's what needs to be happen. If somebody needs to run outside real quick, through that door, get something, and come back in, then another employee or, or manager needs to stand there to make sure that nobody except that one employee comes back in. Number two is we have to start recognizing the warning signs. Every one of these perpetrators exhibit warning signs to their friends, their family, coworkers, associates outside of work or school, whatever the case may be. And most of the time, these warning signs are ignored as, as I say, you know, they're just going through a bad time. I don't want to warn the company because they're not worth warning or whatever the case may be. And those are the main things that we need to do as employees and student managers and so on. What about in the moment of, never having been in that scenario, and I can imagine how terrifying it must be. You've talked about the things that you should do and should not do in the moment when an active shooter is taking place. In that kind of scenario, and I realize that there's a lot of variables here, Um, what, what would be the smart thing to do, for example, if you'd been at the concert in Las Vegas back in 2017, might not be the thing that you should be doing uh, if you're sitting at your desk at the Annapolis newspaper. But in terms of general rule of thumb, walk us through, if you would, Robert, some of the things that folks can and should not be doing in an active shooter scenario. Well, the prevailing attitude that has been put forth by the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and numerous other uh, police organizations for, the, for more than the past decade is the run, hide, and fight. In other words, run away, hide, or if you don't have any other choice, fight. I kind of turn that around and say you need to fight first, then run and hide. I, and I say fight first. I understand that there's not everybody is going to be able to do that. Okay? If you can do that, you need to try to stop the shooter from causing more harm than they want to do. We've seen several examples in the past couple of months where this actually works fairly well, and the death count was held either to zero or just a couple of people. And granted, that's never that somebody gets killed like that while they're out in a restaurant or something. Uh, the Waffle House in Antioch, Tennessee, is what I'm talking about. That's never acceptable. At least there were only four killed before this other customer took an AR-15 away from the shooter. And in Noblesville, Indiana, the, I believe it was the history teacher, rushed the student that walked in with a firearm back in May and took it away from him. Yes, the teacher got shot three times, but he took the focus away from the other students in the class, put it onto him, and he was able to take down the teenager, the student, before he could hurt anybody else. And like I say, sometimes you can't do that. There's some, you know, most people are not going to be able to do that at all. So in that case, then you need to try to find a place to get out that would not be known to the shooter if they're an ex-employee or hide somewhere where they're not going to be able to come and uh, get you or know that you're there or whatever the case may be. 
And, of course, the, the fight scenario could be something as simple as picking up a, thre- a chair and throwing it at the shooter to distract them or grab a fire extinguisher and clobber them over the head if you have to, I suppose. Absolutely. Anything that you can do to distract the shooter from what they're doing and put the focus on you or a group of people instead of the rest of the office or the school will, like I say, it'll take the focus off of them, put it on you, and that gives you a leg up, and there will be uh, less casualties in the long run than there would be otherwise. Do employers take a great deal of the responsibility here in terms of creating the kind of environment necessary that makes it as safe as possible? And and by that I mean, uh, Robert, things like making sure that there are security doors, that once an employee leaves or is terminated, that their ability to gain access to a building is reduced, that there is some system of checks and balances to know who's coming and going, things of that sort? Oh, absolutely. The employer has an obligation by federal law to provide a safe working environment for their employees. Now, a safe working environment does not is not spelled out in that I believe it's an OSHA uh, regulation, but a safe working environment would definitely include not having somebody come in with a firearm and start shooting people. And yes, anti-passback doors and gates, turnstiles somebody going into the computer system to delete somebody's access on their car on their access card if that's what it is their time card whatever the case may be there's a lot of things that employers can do to prevent somebody from coming back in after they've been terminated and they're not all i'm not going to say they're all cheap you know bullet resistant glass is definitely not cheap which would be something if you've got an office like the Capitol Gazette. You know, they had two big glass doors. Bullet-resistant glass would have resisted a shotgun blast long enough for somebody to unlock the back door and for everybody to get out before he could get in instead of just shattering it everywhere and being able literally just to walk right in. So, you know, it's a matter that security for any company or school has to be multi-comprehensive in effect, you know, taking in access control, exit, door locks, door alarms, uh, the sign-in, sign-out, who's in there, who's not, cameras and surveillance if necessary, uh, bag checks, metal detectors. You can't do just one thing and say, okay, we're safe and secure. That's all we got to do. You know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you could put a security officer out front at the front desk or the front door or whatever the case may be, and, you know, hey, that's it. We're safe. Well, you can't do that anymore. And amazingly, and we're coming on 25 years since the um, the 101 California attack at the uh, uh, Pettit and Martin Law Offices that killed eight and left six others injured. And in all those years, we seemingly have not learned any lessons. Maybe it would be a good juncture now in the wake of the tragedy that occurred in Annapolis last week to stop and ask yourself, ask your boss, ask your church, ask the place that you hang out, what kind of measures have been taken in order to make sure that this is a as secure 
location as possible. Understanding, as Robert just mentioned, there's no foolproof, and in some cases you can uh, engage in all of these exercises and still have somebody go off crazy. But the idea is to mitigate the liability as much as you possibly can. More information available on the web, Robert D. Solars, S-O-L-L-A-R-S dot com. Robert, we appreciate the time and the insights today. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the program, 552 on this Thursday edition of Lifeline. And uh, we are attempting to get a hold of Brad Dacus. He is apparently eluding us, but we have ways, don't we? Yes, indeed. We've got the team working on it. Meanwhile, I'll mention, if you hadn't heard, uh, on the heels of the announcement just last week that uh, Justice Kennedy is going to be stepping down his position at the end of July. Multiple reports now coming out of Washington that the president has narrowed the list of possible Supreme Court nominees down to three, count them, three names. The contenders are appeals court judges Barrett Kavanaugh, Raymond Kethledge and Amy Coney Barrett. Now, both Kavanaugh and Kethledge served as law clerks to Justice Kennedy, while Barrett clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia. The president is expected to announce his pick for the Supreme Court by next Monday. So, we'll get a look at that and see whether or not the next part of this battle will be to confirm or not to confirm. That is the question we pose to constitutional lawyer and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. And uh, Brad, I want to get your quick opinion here on, on two items. First, of the three names that have come forward, um, Kavanaugh, Kethledge, and um, Coney, who do you think most likely would easily, or how should I phrase this, with the least amount of resistance, make their way through Senate confirmation hearings? Yeah, that's, that's, a, real, that's a real tough one. Um, you know, that, that said, um, it's, 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 it could be. They, they all have some things about, I mean, one hand you got Kavalot, who's uh, seemingly political in his background, but everyone's political if they're in, uh, in law, they have opinions of the law and, and who should be legislators. Uh, and then on the, on the other hand, you have um, you know Amy, who's uh, you know she's she's you know very very bright, very intelligent, very sharp, um, and a uh, great reputation. But she was openly harassed because of her Catholic faith, and whether she was too Catholic or too serious about her Catholic faith to be able to be in. Uh, uh, to sit on the bench. I thought we got that all of our system when Kennedy ran for office. I guess not. Yeah, you'd think so, huh? But uh, but it was it was blatant, and it was from you know Diane Feinstein uh, from California. She was you know just open in her her uh, criticism because of her concern about her being uh, too committed to her Catholic faith uh, that she would lose objectivity. Then you have Raymond, who uh, I think uh, has a a very uh, you know good chance of, of you know, being elected, but he's also has some opinions from the Sixth Circuit where he's, you know, has stood strong and hard for the uh, very um, strict interpretation of a law as well as the Constitution. And uh, and many on the left just, you know, cringe at the, at the thought of having someone who fully and, and completely respects uh, original intent and strict, and strict scrutiny uh, interpreting the Constitution. So they will all three will be attacked. None of the three will make it through. Um, you know, as a cakewalk. But I do think um, of the three, I think Raymond would probably um, have the, the easier of the three, but all of them will have a tough shot. 
And clearly any of them that would come across as strict constitutionalists are no doubt going to be heavily challenged by Senate Democrats that are decidedly progressive and like to see the Constitution rather as um, one and done, uh, but instead as sort of this living, breathing document that moves and undulates with changing times. Yeah, well, one thing I think people need to understand, too, Craig, is that if you have someone that's a a conservative constitutionalist, um, you know, then there's someone who they're going to uh, inherently self-constrain themselves uh, to a great degree from legislating from the bench um, conservative principles that they uh, conservative causes that they may agree with because of their commitment to the Constitution. So, when someone says that they're a constitutionalist, original intent, strict uh, you know, scrutiny, strict constructionist, uh, then uh, that's someone who's really safe for everyone uh, from uh, judicial activism that could go in either direction. Uh, if they're not in that uh, mindset. This has been a, certainly a very busy season for the U.S. Supreme Court. In addition to the announcement that a seat will be opened at the end of July, SCOTUS made a number of key decisions, one of which we've been following for some time, and that has been the case of the, the recent reversal of California's so-called Reproductive Fact Act. Uh, no doubt uh, there was uh, some celebratory moments in your office when that announcement came down. Oh, yes, yes, because we had a, a companion uh, case lawsuit right along with that uh, defending several pro-life pregnancy clinics here in California uh, before the Supreme Court. So that was an automatic victory for us and our clients. Uh, the case, Our case now goes back down to the Ninth Circuit uh, where they have to rehear it and, uh, and reassess the, uh, the case uh, uh, given the outcome of the Supreme Court's recent decision. But what many people don't realize is that this case is actually much broader and stronger than, than I think uh, that first meets the eye. First they think, okay, well, pro-life pregnancy clinics who receive no money from the government don't have to say something that, uh, you know, get out pro-abortion advertising in their waiting room. Yeah, that's true. But the court also went on, Craig, to rule that professional speech, is a very broad decision, professional speech is protected speech like any other speech. And this was different than some other uh, case law in the past and two other decisions, like the King's case. So um, this can be very applicable in the medical profession, psychiatric profession, uh, even the, the legal profession, where they're trying to put restrictions on, on what lawyers can say or not say based on uh, new PC guidelines. So uh, it's, it's going to be very revolutionary and very pro-free speech, First Amendment protection for many areas of occupation, which is uh, good news for those of us who appreciate uh, free speech. Finally, counsel, your thoughts on another historic decision I handed down uh, just a week ago from the Supreme Court, and that is in relationship to the issue of uh, so-called political fees versus outright campaigning done by unions and whether or not they can actually force union members to pay those fees. And in this case, decidedly, the courts came down and stripped a lot of power from the union bosses with their decision. Yeah, and, and it was very liberating for union workers who work for the government in 22 states. The other 28 states, they're already free not to uh, be a part of a union they don't agree with. Well, now in the other 22 states, that's about half of all the union workers in non-right-to-work states have now been instantly liberated so that they don't have to pay any dues to any union. They don't have to be a member of any union they don't agree with. It's extremely liberating and, uh, and, and really, uh, it's going to force unions to uh, not just simply to force people to pay them money, but to have to earn their respect and, and by their performance, uh, sell people, the workers, on supporting them based on what they do, uh, not based on what they have to do 
uh, with regards to uh, requiring people to give them union dues. So I think this is a a, a very compelling for those who appreciate individual rights and uh, uh, individual rights specifically of freedom of association. Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer and the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad, as always, we appreciate the time and the insights. More available information at pacificjustice.org.